Welcome, and thank you for listening to Sandy Creek Stirrings. I'm your host, Joshua Jimenez. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. The Bible says in Psalm 84, 11, my last verse, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I based my whole life on that, that it pays to serve God, and I believe that law of my heart. God has given us a guidebook. God has given us a directional map, and that guidebook, that map, is the precious Word of God. Listen, don't just go and sit in the pew. Find somewhere to serve and serve as a family. Be a part of everything at church, and when you learn to love what God loves, um, your children will learn to love it as well. Homes are not that spiritually strong. We're getting overtaken by the world quickly, but unfortunately, we're pumping all the sewage in. You know, we're letting the world in when that ought to be a haven. Welcome back to another episode of Sandy Creek Stirrings. I am so glad to have you with me back again in today's episode here on the podcast. And here we are. We've had to take a week off here, a week off there. But we are finally back online, live, and recording once again. Now, I'll apologize right now. We had to um, postpone last week's episode due to a sickness that I got uh, three weeks ago now. And um, it is just, was sick for about a week, week and a half. And then it is just not let go. I'm not sick anymore, but you know, dealing with the after effects of a sickness with uh, your nasal passages still, you know, maybe being a little clogged, maybe a little running a little bit. And then my voice just has not come back completely. So I apologize for not having that wonderfully smooth and deep bass, nice voice that I normally talk with, which is Never. But anyway, at least I apologize for not having as a, uh, a voice that today is going to be a little crackly. I apologize for that. And uh, otherwise, it'll still be the high squeak. Uh, the high-pitched, uh, squeaky Joshua Jimenez voice that you're used to. So, um, But I'm glad you're back listening today here on the podcast. We're going to be continuing our episode entitled Making the Bible Version Debate Simple. Again, that's Making the Bible Version Debate Simple. Now, we began that episode series in our very last episode, which was episode number, and I'm looking it up here, 244. You say, wow, did you ever expect to make it 244 episodes? No, I did not. And uh, here we are, episode number 245, and we'll be continuing that Making the Bible Version Debate Simple. Now, let me encourage you, if you missed the very last episode, you need to go back and listen to it first before listening to this episode, okay? So go back. If you missed the last one, go back and listen to episode number 244. That details exactly what the Bible says about itself. What If we're going to um, believe some things about the Word of God, about what God has to say about His Word, uh, not what man says about His Word, but what God Himself says about His Word, 
things like the Bible is the inspired Word of God, things like God said His words are perfect and pure, uh, things like God said that His words should not be added to or taken away from, uh, things like God's Word is our sole authority for all areas of life, things like God promised He would preserve His Word, by the way, to every generation. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, His, his truth endureth to all generations. Psalm 33 verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. And tons and tons of other verses. If you missed that, let me encourage you, go back and listen to the episode from last time. It's vital that you have that understanding of why this is so important. And we talked about the difference between sword and garden tools, the difference between a sword and garden tools. Now, if you've been a faithful listener of Sandy Creek Stirrings, then you know that when I do an episode series, I do not do a whole lot of review. I simply tell you, hey, go back and listen to the last episode, and that's the easiest way to do this. If you're listening, you can always just turn off this episode, go back and listen to the last episode, and that way we can take the majority of this this episode you're listening to now and focus on the issue. And so I'm going to skip past all the fluff and telling you to like and subscribe and do whatever you want to do or leave a review or send an email. By the way, the email is joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. But I'm going to skip all the fluff and just jump right into today. This is part two, making the Bible version debate simple. This is the part that I entitle the foundational issue. The foundational issue. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Yes, five verses. I'm going to read them to you. The Bible says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven and we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter, in this passage, talks about how he and some others were witnesses of the majority—not the majority, the majesty of Jesus Christ. And they weren't following some neat story or some fairy tale. That's the term he uses for cunningly devised fables. Uh, They're just neat stories. They're fairy tales. He said, we weren't following a fairy tale. He said, we heard the voice from heaven for ourselves, and, and what a wonderful sight it was. But he tells the reader that we have something even better. If you were to go into your Bible, look at for verse 19 of that passage, it says, We have also a more sure word. He says, hey, we have a sure word of God. What's that mean? It's settled. It's sure. The word sure here literally means firm, stable, trustworthy. We have a sure word of God that we can trust in. Why? Because of some of the things we talked about last week, uh, like the Bible is inspired, the inspired word of God. 
Again, if you were to look at verse number 21 of this passage, you would clearly see that God says, For the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And last week, when we looked at many different facts, things like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, those are important to remember as we now take a look at specific versions of the Bible later on in the study. And I want you to remember as we go through this that if a version of the Bible or if a man or a preacher, teacher, whatever he wants to call himself, a prophet, whatever he wants to call himself, if he contradicts the Word of God, then they literally oppose the Bible. Now, coming full circle, as we read in, in 1 Peter 1.19, we have a sure Word of God that we can trust in. The question is, how do we know if something is sure? How do we know if it's stable? How do we know if it's firm, if it's trustworthy? Well, you check its foundation. What lies beneath it? What holds it up? Those are important things. Christ taught this principle with one of the most well-known stories of Scripture, the wise man and the foolish man. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 7, you've heard the story before. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27 say, Therefore whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Christ would tell us in this passage that it matters what you build a house on. That's why God would say in in Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You see, the foundation is the element that can make or break what is built on it. When we come to the Bible version debate, when we come to making it simple, it's, it's incredibly important that we look at the foundational issue. And there, were, there will be many people, who, if you go and you research this out online for yourself, there will be many people who tell you that this, the Bible version debate, is just an issue over modern language. It's just an issue over modern English, and that's really not true. There is an issue of foundations, which makes what I call, and as I started, I said this is a foundational issue. Now, I'm going to give a, a ton of information, a lot of facts in, in um, this particular episode And I know as a listener, if I was listening to myself, uh, I wouldn't grasp everything the first time I hear it. It, There's going to be a lot of information given. Do not, let me encourage you, just because I say that, do not skip this episode. I'm going to be giving statistics and numbers, and I'm going to do my best to make it as simple as possible. And if if you have any questions, let me encourage you, send me an email. That's joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. Again, my email address is joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. Send me an email, and I'd love to answer any questions you have, point you to more information or more sources that can verify exactly what I'm saying. 
I would love to do that. But let me encourage you, do not skip this episode because this is going to be so, so, so important. It is literally going to link up like a chain to the next episode we'll be producing. So I know we're going to give some facts. I'm going to make them as simple as possible. So let's get right into it. There are literally hundreds of English translations of the Bible. AmericanBible.org says there are over 900 English translations of the Bible, whether complete or incomplete. But if you were to go to a Bible bookstore, or even a secular bookstore like the Barnes & Noble, like the Books a Million, you would find in their religious section, in their Bible section, you would find shelf after shelf after bookcase after bookcase of English translations. And allow me, if I may, to give you a little insight. When you look shelf after shelf and bookcase after bookcase, you don't see 900 English translations. You don't see 500. You don't see 100. You don't see 50. You don't see 20. You don't even see 10. You really only say two. You only see two. You say, how is that? I mean, I see the NIV, the New King James, the ESV, the ASV, the, I, I, the CSB, the Living Bible, the Amplified Bible, uh, the New American Standard. You say, I see tons of them. How do I only see two? And that's because all translations are based off of one of two lines of manuscripts. Let me say that again for you. You only see two because all English translations of Scripture are based on one of two lines of manuscripts. Now, let me, before I even talk about what are manuscripts, can I just remind you, the listener, real quick? We are talking about English translations in this series. When God originally inspired his words, he didn't inspire them in English. Paul and Peter did not write books in English. They wrote them in Greek. All right, God originally inspired his word in predominantly Hebrew for the Old Testament, predominantly Greek for the New Testament. And when we talk about Bible versions, we're simply talking about different translations of that Hebrew and Greek. So as the writers pen the words of God, they would write them down on a material called parchment. Parchment was incredibly fragile. It did not last long. It it really just kind um, of—sometimes they would use pressed leaves and other materials, but they never lasted long. They would become dry, and they would become brittle, and they would literally just start to disintegrate. So to preserve these letters that were written— and these books of history and these different things, a group of copyists would copy down the Word of God to keep them preserved for the next generation. And within history, this group of copyists were called scribes. Now, scribes were also considered lawyers as well, but one of their main jobs was to copy the Word of God. And And they followed meticulous methods for copying down the Word of God, and they took their job very seriously. And when the New Testament books were penned, they were authored uh, by the Holy Spirit through men of God, and they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, the Bible says in that passage we read earlier. As these books were penned, they were then sent to the churches. And the churches 
having been instructed to pass them on to other churches. If you've read many of the epistles, you'll find where Paul would say, hey, send this over to this church. Well, if we had a letter from the Apostle Paul, and it was a good letter, I mean, it it was very convicting at some points, but it was good. It was from the Apostle Paul to our church, and he told me to send it over there. Well, I really don't want to. So what would they do to preserve it? They would make copies of the letter, and that's the way the Word of God was preserved. Now, before I continue that thought, I want to take a step back real quick and give you two terms you need to understand to make sense of what I'm saying in this episode. Number one, the first term that I want you to understand is the term autographs, all right? Autographs. Autographs were the sheets that Paul, Peter, Luke, John, Moses, uh, these were the sheets of paper, the sheets of parchment, whatever material they used. These were the literal pages they wrote on. Now, as already mentioned, parchment didn't last long. And because of that, we don't have any of the autographs. We don't have what you might term the originals. All we have are copies, which lead us to our second term. And that second term I want you to understand is the term manuscripts. Manuscripts are simply copies of the autographs. So when I say manuscripts, it's vitally important you understand what am I saying? What is Josh on Sandy Creek Stirring saying when he says the word manuscripts? Manuscripts are simply copies of the autographs. When the scribes made copies and when the churches made copies, these were what we call manuscripts. So circle back. You're standing in a bookstore. AmericanBible.org says there's over 900 English translations of the Bible, whether complete or incomplete. And you see, I don't know, you look, there's 10 different tags for 10 different translations. Why do you say there's only two? Because all translations, English translation of the Bible, I mean the the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New International Version, um, let's give the acronyms for them, the the NIV, the NASB, the RSV, the AMP, the ESV, the CSB, every single translation of the Bible comes from one of two lines, or what we could say two groups of manuscripts. So all those copies that were made of the autographs, the originals, all these copies, these manuscripts from the scribes and churches form two groups of manuscripts. And you say, what does that matter? Well, what matters is, is each translation is based off of one of these two groups, and this becomes the foundational issue. This is the foundation for every single English translation of the Bible. Now you say, why Why are there two groups of manuscripts? I mean, there was one autograph. Shouldn't there just be one group of manuscripts? Well, the reason there's two groups... Now get this. This is deep. This is hard to understand. The reason there's two groups is because they are different from each other. I mean, it's really not that hard, folks. You take the ones that agree with each other, and you put them over here in a group... And then you take the ones that don't agree with those and they form a separate group. And so we have two different groups of manuscripts. The question is, what is your Bible translation founded upon? Well, let's talk about those groups of manuscripts real quick. Number one, the first group of manuscripts that I'm going to bring up is the one that you may have heard. And if you've listened to Sandy Creek Stirrings for a few episodes, you've probably heard it before. The first group of manuscripts is called the Textus Receptus, all right? 
Textus Receptus is Latin. It simply means received text. Now, this is the most common term and is sometimes referred to in its abbreviated term, just the initials, the TR. Another name that it's called by, and it has actually become my preferred name for this group of manuscripts, this group of copies, another term for it is the traditional text. The traditional text. You say, why is it called that? Why is it my preference? That's something we'll discuss in just a moment. But let me give you a little bit of history behind this group of texts that we would call the traditional text or the Textus Receptus. When Jerusalem faded off the scene as the hub of Christianity, remember, Jerusalem is the one that just started it all off, but if you remember about halfway through the book of Acts, they began to kind of die away, and Antioch became the place of Christianity, and really true Christianity at that. This was the place where they were first called Christians. This was the place where Paul and Barnabas were sent out um, of the church to be missionaries. They weren't sent out of Jerusalem. They were sent out of Antioch, and Antioch became the tip of the gospel spearhead. And the church at Antioch really became the head of worldwide missions. This was not a, a hierarchy, but simply a base point. And Antioch during this time also became the head of producing God's Word, as many of the manuscripts or the copies we have were produced from Antioch. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about Antioch again real quick, but I, I want to mention something that if you look this up, I want to go ahead and approach the subject. If you were to look up different people who do debates or talk about the English Bible translations, and they begin to talk about the traditional text, and they don't like the King James Version, they don't like the, um, the, the Textus Receptus, they don't like the traditional text, one of the things they'll do is they'll say that it's not good, it's not good, and the reason why is, it, is it's not the oldest, it's not the best texts. And they'll tell you, people like, and I'm giving his name, but I would encourage every single person to stay away from him, don't listen to him. Uh, for one, he teaches false doctrine, he te he's a Calvinist, um, so you could go back and listen to our episode series on Calvinism, just go back through our episode list, you'll find Calvinism part one and part two, um, but he teaches Calvinism, and he's also a vocal advocate against the King James Bible and against the Textus Receptus. One thing he'll do to try and shut the door on this idea of the Textus Receptus, he'll say, well, one, those aren't the oldest and the best texts. And then he'll say, secondly, that these texts, the Textus Receptus, was created by an, a man named Desiderius Erasmus in 1516. And he will tell people, I've heard it said within debates he has written, that the TR, the Textus Receptus, did not exist until the 1516. And that's really not true. You see, Erasmus didn't create the Textus Receptus. He simply compiled it. He published it. He put it into print. It was already there. So he didn't create the Textus Receptus. All he did was put it into print. Remember, the, the printing press had been invented not too long before Erasmus came around and before this, every single copy was hand-copied, but not anymore. Now, Erasmus could take this traditional text and put it into print and put it out to the world like the Bible had never been before. So Erasmus did not create the traditional text. He simply put it in print. He published it. 
And how do you say, well, Brother Josh, that's just your opinion. How do you know that? I mean, this James White guy has written a bunch of books. You're just a 26-year-old podcaster. You don't know anything. I mean, this guy's been studying this for a long time. Well, the reason I know it's false is because there are manuscript evidence. There is, I guess would be the more proper English term. There's manuscript evidence to prove that the Textus Receptus has been around for a really, really long time. Now, the term, the term Textus Receptus, well, yeah, that came around with Erasmus, but the actual text itself had been there for a really, really long time. For example, if you go back to 150 AD, yeah, 150 AD, which is like just not very long after John finished the book of Revelation, Go back to 150 AD, the Antiochian church produced a Syriac translation of the New Testament called the Peshitta translation. And it was the Hebrew and the Greek translated into Syrian. And if you were to compare that Syrian translation, what does it read like? Does it read like the Textus Receptus? Does it read like the traditional text that we're talking about now? Or does it read like the group of texts that we're going to talk about in a second? Which one does it agree with? Does it line up with this first group or does it line up with the second group? Well, if you were to read it, if you were to read the Peshitta, it is proof that the Texas Receptus was alive and well all the way back to 150 AD. Remember, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, was only completed some 50 to some 70 years before this. We don't know for sure when Revelation was written, thus you have a gap of time. But it reads like the Texas Receptus, not like this other group over here. That's not a singular happening, though. Shortly after the translation of the Peshitta, about seven, seven years or so, the Itala version was translated in northern Italy. It was a translation that reads like the Textus Receptus. In the 4th century, which is the 300s, a man by the name of Wolfilla translated the New Testament into the Gothic language in Europe to reach the Goths. Again, it was another Texas Receptus-based translation. The Waldensians, if you've listened to our Baptist history series, you've heard about them, a group of Baptist forefathers, the Waldensians. They produced translations in their time of the Texas Receptus-based New Testaments. And you'll find that throughout history, go back and study it, study translations you'll find that the early churches used this beloved manuscript. The church in early church history, you'll find, used only the traditional text, and you can tell this from their writings. And that's why I prefer the term now, instead of Texas Receptus, I prefer the term traditional text. It really doesn't matter, but that's the term I, pro I prefer. Why? Because it was the group of manuscripts that was traditionally used by the early churches. Texas Receptus was a term given to this group of manuscripts after Erasmus put it into print. So to people who would say that it wasn't created until 1516 really just don't know enough about translational history to know the truth that there is manuscript evidence, there's translational evidence, that the traditional text can be traced back all the way until about 50 years after John finished the book of Revelation. And so understanding the early history of the traditional text is important because many of its critics, critics discredit it because they say it's not the oldest, it's not the best text. Well, with the evidence that I just provided, and I could give more, we can easily prove the antiquity of the, of the traditional text. Be careful never to take 
even mine, but others as well, their statements at face value. Always do your research as we do here. Go up, look up the Peshitas translation, look up the Italis translation, look up the translation that the Wolfilla did, and you'll find that what I'm telling you is the truth, and the traditional text has been around for a very long time. So this first group of manuscripts coming predominantly from Antioch in Syria, traditionally used by the church, the early church, traditionally used for translations, this group we'll call the traditional text. You could call it the Textus Receptus as well. But this group of copies, this group of manuscripts is the first one. Let's set it aside. And I said there were two groups of, of manuscripts. Let's pull that second one into view. So grab it off the shelf, pull it into view. Here is the second group of manuscripts we're going to look at. And this is one called the critical text. Some also refer to it as the eclectic text. But the critical text can be predominantly traced back to Alexandria, Egypt. Now, unlike Antioch and its growing missions emphasis, Alexandria had a completely different type of history. In the 4th century, Alexandria was an area filled with early Catholic, what we might call, quote-unquote, church fathers. And these men taught many different things contrary to Scripture, and I can't discuss them in depth in this short study. If you go back to our early episodes of our Baptist History series, we discussed the Catholic Church Fathers and went through many of them. So you can go back and find that in our Baptist History series. And we don't have time to discuss that today, but Alexandria was really a hotbed for these false teachings that these guys promoted. For instance, I'll give one. There was a guy by the name of Origen. Origen taught a religious school in Alexandria, and it's sad because he doubted the, the veracity of God's Word. He would go on to say uh, many different things that we can't even take the, the book of Genesis literally. You can go back and read that in his writings. Obviously, that's not a direct quote. That's just a paraphrase, but you can go back and listen to some of that in our previous series. But the predominant belief in the minds of these religious scholars was that the words of God weren't even true. Not only that, but it was also a hot spot, a hot spot for Gnosticism, which is the teaching that Jesus Christ is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah because he had a fleshly body. This was big during this time period, and this is where the critical text predominantly originated from. Now, you say, well, wait a second, why is the critical text traced back predominantly to Alexandria, Egypt? Well, that's because about 90%, 90%, I don't know if you know anything, but 90% is a lot, right? If you know anything about numbers, 90% out of 100%, that's a lot of the percentages. That is well over the majority. 90% of the critical text is based on one singular manuscript. Not a group of manuscripts, but one manuscript by itself, one copy by itself. That manuscript is called Codex Vaticanus, or, that's Latin, or in English, Book of the Vatican. It was found miraculously, one author prefers to say mysteriously, in the Vatican Library, and scholars say that this text was originated in 330 AD is when some people give it a, um, it's a the date for when it was, uh, when it originated was 330 AD. And many people say that Codex Vaticanus is the oldest 
and best manuscript because of its age. It's the one closest to the time of the autographs, the originals. But why is it older in their minds than the traditional text? I mean, we just gave manuscript and translational evidence that we can look at the traditional text and see that the early church used it. Even going back to 150 AD, why would they then turn around and look at a manuscript that's different from the traditional text? They look at Codex Vaticanus and say, no, 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 this one is the earliest. Well, the reason they say it's the earliest is because they say the traditional text was created in 1516. Is that true? Well, no. We just discussed what we saw earlier. We can give evidence that the traditional text has been around much longer than 1516. But interesting enough, this Codex Vaticanus was never indexed. It was never recorded in the Vatican Library until 1475, over 1,000 years after its creation. Did you catch that? They say that it was originally copied in 330 AD. Nobody indexed it. Nobody recorded it. They miraculously found it in 1475. That's over 1,000 years after it was supposedly copied. And think about this. If the traditional text wasn't created like they say until 1516, and Codex Vaticanus wasn't found until 1475, that means people did not have the Word of God in their vernacular language, whether it be Latin whether it be English, whether it be Syrian, whether it be whatever language you want to pick other than Greek and Hebrew, nobody had the Word of God for almost 1,400 years. And what I find is that God said He would preserve His Word to all generations. Now, how long is a generation? I don't know necessarily. I'm sure Google could probably tell you a generation, but let's say everybody lived to be 100 years old. Well, every 100 years would be a new generation. That's 14 generations, right? If we were to look at, it, look at it in that way, that's 14 generations of people that did not have the Bible in their own language. And God said he would preserve it to all generations. That means every single one. But not according to the scholar, because they basically and practically say that people for 1,400 years didn't have the Word of God. And how ridiculous that is. Codex Vaticanus was produced in Alexandria, Egypt, and that's why 90% of the critical texts can be traced back to Alexandria, Egypt. So those are the two groups of manuscripts. You have one, the first one we started with, the traditional text. The second group you have is the critical text. So now that we have identified the two groups of manuscripts, let's talk about real quick manuscript evidence. Now, something you need to understand is that there were people who did not like God's Word. They would purposely take a manuscript, they would take a copy, and they would make changes. They would remove things they didn't like, they would add things they thought should be in there, and thus some copies were nothing more than fakes pretending to be God's Word. You say nobody would do that. Really? Go back to the late 1900s when the Jehovah Witnesses took the Word of God and mangled it to try and make it fit their beliefs. People do that. And when we look at a manuscript, we gather all the historical evidence we have to determine if that manuscript is true or false, because some of them were mangled by people who did not like the Word of God. And just one way of verifying a manuscript is 
by manuscript evidence. It's by examining how many manuscripts support a line, a group of manuscripts. So we could view almost these manuscripts as being witnesses to the truth. Let me give you an example. Let's say there was a mass shooting. All right, there's a mass shooting in your town and you're a cop on duty and you're in charge of interviewing the witnesses to put out a report of what happened. The gunman had escaped, so you need to put out an APB to find him. And so you go to the scene and there are 54 witnesses. They've kind of corralled up and these are the people you're going to talk to to find out what happened. You begin to interview the 54 people and 50 people, 50 of them say it was a guy that was, he was heavy set, about five foot eight, had on a blue hood, blue hoodie, used a black AR-15. He had a green backpack on his back. All 50 agree to those details. So that's 50 of the 54. Then you go, there's two other people and they agree. They say, well, he was heavy set, five foot eight. He had a green backpack and used an AR-15, but he, he didn't have on a blue hoodie. He had on a red hoodie. Well, that's a little bit different, right? And then you interview the 53rd person, and they say, no, 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 he wasn't heavy set. He was skinny. He was five foot eight. He had on a blue hoodie and a green backpack, but he didn't use an AR-15. He used a revolver. Okay, another few differences. And then person number 54 says he was skinny. He wasn't five eight. He was six foot five. He had on a blue hoodie with a pink backpack, and he used a revolver. So when you get to your car as the police officer, you grab the radio and you're going to radio out what the police officer should be looking for. What are you going to tell them? You're going to tell them what the 50 people said, aren't you? That he was heavy set, five foot eight, had on a blue hoodie, used a black AR-15 and carried a green backpack. That's what you're going to put out. Why? Because that's the majority and the majority is right. We can do the same with manuscripts if we look at them as witnesses. We can do the same with manuscripts. Now, we could get into the majority versus the minority, and just because the world says, you know, the majority of the world wants homosexuality, that doesn't make the majority right, and that's a different topic. But when we're looking at evidence, we're going to go back and view it the same way we would view it as this story of the police officer. So when we go and we look at the critical text, how many witnesses, how many manuscripts, how many copies say that the critical text is the Word of God? Well, for all practical purposes, the critical text has only two manuscripts that validate its existence. And the reason I say only two is because 90% of Codex Vaticanus, the Greek New Testament found at the Vatican, and 8% of it. So we've got 90% is based on Codex Vaticanus. 8% is based on Codex Sinaiticus. Now, Codex Sinaiticus is a Greek New Testament, and it was found near, in a, near Mount Sinai. It was in a monastery at the base of Mount Sinai. So if we put that simply, 98%, 98% of the critical text is based on two singular manuscripts, two singular copies by themselves, 98%. Now, of course, that leaves 2% left over for other texts, and that means that the translators who use the critical text base 98% of their product off of two manuscripts alone. So, thus again, I stayed. For all practical purposes, the critical text has only two manuscripts, two copies that validate its existence. 
Now, combining that 98% with the 2% left over, how many total manuscripts is the critical text composed of? We have 45, right? 45. If you were to look at, I want you to get this example for a second real quick, okay? Let's talk about toilet paper for a second. Toilet paper. Now, to be clear, I am in no way calling the Bible toilet paper. What I want to do is in this, I want to create a visual illustration. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home, grab a roll of toilet paper. So put me on pause, go into the restroom real quick, grab a roll of toilet paper, or go into the little bin where you keep your other rolls of toilet paper. Grab a roll of toilet paper that has not been used. All right, go ahead and grab it. Now, you'll notice on the toilet paper roll, there are little squares of toilet paper that divide it, right? You get a little square. Go ahead and let's create the group of manuscripts that we call the critical text. So find, count out 45 squares. Go ahead. I'm serious. Do it. Go ahead and pause me. Count out 45 squares of toilet paper and put them all in a stack and have 45. Did you do it? All right, that right there is the manuscripts that say, they are the witnesses that say this manuscript line over here is the truth. Why? Because they agree with each other. They are the witnesses that say this is the true story. This is the true New Testament. This is the true autographs. This is the truth. They agree with each other. At least they're supposed to agree with each other. They form the critical text, all right? So we stack those up, 45 those are the critical text manuscripts. Now, what about the traditional text? Well, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't have 45. It doesn't even have 40 or 30 or, or 20 or even 10. It's, it doesn't have that many manuscripts. It, what I want you to do is I want you to grab that roll of toilet paper and just peel all of the toilet paper off of it. Just peel all of it off. Just keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep, until you get nothing but the little cardboard tube. Toss that over your shoulder. And now you've just got a big pile of toilet paper in front of you, right? On average, on an average roll of toilet paper, there are 235 of those little squares of toilet paper. I only know this because I looked it up. I did not sit there and count. And there are 235 squares on average on a roll of toilet paper. So you've got the 45 over here for the critical text. Now we have 235 over here for the traditional text. Now what I want you to do is, is go find where you keep the toilet paper in your home. And I want you to pull out 25 more rolls of toilet paper and stack it on top of that 235. Because the traditional text has almost 6,000 manuscripts in its group of manuscripts. The traditional text has almost 6,000 manuscripts in, the group, in its group of manuscripts to say that it is true. Recent research says that it's actually over 7,000, but I'm waiting for that to be confirmed before I state it as fact. But that's 6,000 compared to 45. 6,000 compared to almost 45. But... Can I give you another problem real quick? Remember how our, in our example of the mass shooting, you know, you had the 50 that agreed with each other, the majority. And then you had the four witnesses, two agreed with each other, but they didn't agree with the other 50. And then you had two who, they didn't agree with anybody. Now, while we have almost 6,000 manuscripts that validate the traditional text, 
almost 6,000, which, by the way, creates the majority of texts, not to be confused with what Dr. Arthur Farstad and some others have taken, and they've created what has been labeled the majority text, which is a completely different topic for a completely different time. But what I'm saying is not using it as a term or as a name, but simply the fact that the majority of text say that the traditional text is true. We have the critical text, it's the minority, and actually when you look at the 45 manuscripts it has, while they're supposed to agree with each other, they actually disagree with each other. Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus make up 98% of the critical text, we've already mentioned that. But when you take the two manuscripts, you take those two copies of the New Testament, and you compare them side by side, you'll find over 3,000 variations between the two manuscripts in just the four Gospels alone. That's over 3,000 errors, 3,000 contradictions in the first four books of the Bible between those, two, between those two copies. And remember, those two texts, those two manuscripts, those two singular copies, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, form 98% of what some scholars say are the most, quote-unquote, most accurate line of manuscripts. And really to say most accurate is ridiculous. If we continued looking at just those two manuscripts, those two copies, Codex Vaticanus is missing over 30 verses, has many partial verses, and removes hundreds of words from what is verified by over 5,000 other manuscripts that we can go back and look at the traditional text and say, hey, there's 5,000 manuscripts over here that have this verse and this verse and this verse. Why does Codex Vaticanus not have it? By the way, Codex Sinaiticus does the same. If you were to look online at Codex Sinaiticus, it has corrections written all over its pages. Not only that, but Codex Sinaiticus adds verse, pas verse passages that weren't there in the first place. It even has some readings that not a single other manuscript has within it. In fact, there's, there's much evidence to say that Sinaiticus is actually a fraud. You can go back and do res um, read research done by Dr. David Sorensen. Uh, we don't have time to cover it, but he goes into a lot of detail on the subject. It's very revealing on making a case that Sinaiticus may just be a fraud overall. But I want to go back to last episode. Remember, we said God's Word, God said about His own Word that it's supposed to be pure and perfect with no errors. How can we trust a group of manuscripts that has problems? The critical text, this compilation of contradicting texts, eventually made its way to London. And they came into the hands of two religious doctors, Dr. Brooke Westcott and Dr. Fenton Hort. These two men were instrumental in publishing the critical text the same way Erasmus had taken the traditional text and he had put it into book form, he put it and he had it published, he had it printed and put the label Textus Receptus on it, he had it printed. Well, these guys over here, they went and they took these manuscripts and they put them into print, they published them, they put it in book form for the masses. And they also protracted this theory and promoted it to others that the critical text is composed of the oldest and best text. That was their view, that was their opinion. This right here is the oldest and the best text. And as we've seen in this episode, that's simply not true. Remember, we showed historical evidence of the Textus Receptus, the traditional text, having existed over 100 years 
before the first text of the critical text, Codex Vaticanus. How false this line of thinking is, it's actually just a lie. Now, Westcott and Hort, were these men truly interested in producing a true text? Were these men truly interested in producing an infallible New Testament as God said it would be? Do you think these men even cared that the manuscripts were clearly faulty and missing words of God? Well, sadly, the answer is no. These men were true heretics. I want to allow their own words to speak for themselves for a second. Here is a statement made by Dr. Hort. He said, if you made a decided conviction of the absolute infallibility of the New Testament, practically, I fear I could not join you. Look, this guy didn't even believe that the Bible was infallible. How can someone work to compile and publish the Word of God when they don't even believe what God has to say about his own Word? Here's another statement on the subject made by Dr. Hort. He said, But I am not able to go as far as you in asserting the absolute infallibility of canonical writing, end quote. How sad to hear such heresy. Now, I give him this, at least he was willing to admit that his compilation of the critical text was not infallible. I do not believe that to be his intention because he clearly believes that there is, there is no infallible Word of God if you go back and read his writings anywhere. He just didn't believe it was possible for there to be an infallible Word of God. And Dr. Westcott, well, did he hold the fort? Well, no. He was unfortunately no different than his colleague. We find this statement made by him. He said, quote, No one now, I suppose, holds that the first three chapters of Genesis, for example, give a literal history. I could never understand how anyone reading them with open eyes could think that they did. End quote. Dr. Westcott did not believe in the literal history of Genesis. And they not only doubted the infallibility of God's Word, but they doubted its veracity as well. If you were to study the lives and the beliefs of these men, these statements won't shock you. A careful examination shows that these men flirted with apostasy and heretical beliefs of their day. A couple quotes by them. Dr. Hort said this about Charles Darwin. Yeah, yeah, that Charles Darwin and his book, Origin of Species. I mean, this is the foundational man and the foundational element of the evolutionary theory. He said, quote, Dr. Hort said this, quote, Have you read Darwin? How I should like to talk with you about it. In spite of difficulties, I am inclined to think it is unanswerable. In any case, it is a treat to read such a book. He would go on later to double down on this statement when he said, quote, But the book which has most engaged me is Darwin. Whatever may be thought of it, it is a book that one is proud to be a contemporary with. My feeling is strong that the theory is unanswerable, end quote. Flip over to Dr. Westcott. He believed that heaven was a state of mind rather than a literal place. He said, quote, We may reasonably hope by patient, resolute, faithfully united endeavor to find heaven about us here the glory of our earthly life, end quote. Uh, Dr. Hort made this sad, unbiblical statement concerning Christ and his atonement when he said, quote, The fact is, I do not see how God's justice can be satisfied without every man suffering in his own person the full penalty for our sins, end quote. I'll be honest with you, I'm so glad that the Bible disagrees with him. For God says that he paid the entire debt for our sins, and he says in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation. Now, the list could go on, but 
These alone prove the heretical views of these two men. Dr. Westcott and Dr. Hort are truly responsible for the great falling away and criticism of their traditional text, the Textus Receptus. And today you'll find that almost all modern translations use the Westcott and Hort Greek New Testament as the basis, the standard for their translation. Two heretical men, one faulty text, and we have one big issue. And there are deep problems within the critical text. They remove words, they add words, they have errors and contradictions. They don't line up when comparing them with the majority of other manuscripts. And don't be deceived, the critical text is the minority, 45 versus almost 6,000. And the traditional text is the majority of manuscripts, it's the majority of copies we have. The critical text has errors and contradictions written all over them. They're missing other portions of God's Word. They're in direct violation of the standards we talked about in the very last episode, a clear violation of what God says about His own Word. And how foolish it would be for us to use or even consult this faulty text, the critical text. Dear listener, There are many who will tell you that this, the Bible version debate, is just an issue over modern language and modern English. But for anybody who does an honest and careful study of this issue, we find that claim to be false. At the very core of these translations is a line of manuscripts. Either the critical text on one side, or the traditional text on the other. And if we base our Bible translation off of a faulty line of manuscripts, we can expect to have a final product that is nothing but faulty. That's why the Bible says, Psalm 11.3 again, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's nothing we can do. Just as a house with a faulty foundation, it may stand for a little while, but it won't stand for long. The same goes for a Bible translation with a faulty foundation. It cannot stand up to the core standards God gives concerning His Word. So you say, well, wait a second, what is the KJV based on? What is the King James Bible based on? What are the other modern versions based on? Can you prove it to me? Can you really show me that the NIV is based off of this one and not this one? Can you show me what the KJV is based off of? What is their foundation? What is the, we'll term it this way, the offspring of a faulty foundation? Well, I'm glad you asked because we'll show you next episode. Join me on the next episode, part number three of Making the Bible Version Debate simple. This episode covered the foundational issue. Next time, we'll talk about the offspring of a faulty foundation. If you have any questions, my email address is joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. Again, that's joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. My friend, until next time, keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.